Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens would mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Pasaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. And this week we are joined by the hosts of The Empire Never Ended, Ray, Fritz, and Boris. Thanks for joining us. Hey, hi, I'm uh, Ray. I'm Fritz. And I'm Boris. <laughs> the Empire Never Ended. What is it? And why did you start it? Well, I mean, it's a podcast that we we kind of define it as a, a Balkan, uh, Amerikansky Balkan podcast, because all three of us have some kind of connections to both of these, those places. And we're all still mysterious about explaining that in more detail. And it's also an anti-fascist podcast about more kind of newer nihilist forms of fascism and its connections to, let's say, let's call it the deep state. Although uh, we usually write the deep part in brackets because we also want to talk about the state uh, as only, only one, only one set of brackets, though. We're not, we're not yeah. going on <laughs> because, uh, yeah, we, we, all three of us have an anarchist background, so we are kind of suspicious and critical uh, of the way the deep state is usually the term is being framed today. So we want to talk about it from an anarchist, an anti-fascist perspective. Yeah, and also we're just a bunch of nerds. Um, yeah, and like, <laughs> With not much else going on. <laughs> like sharing the things that that we otherwise are interested in and spend our free time reading about anyway. Yeah. <laughs> well, you should fit right in on Yana Passaran. In terms of the Balkan far right and I guess the transnational far right, uh, something that was interesting, shortly before the Christchurch shooter commenced his attack on March 15 in 2019, he played a song about Radovan Karadzic. Did you find that surprising at all? Uh, not particularly. I mean, we talk about that in one of our episodes a little bit, actually, in the music episode. But, I mean, that song that he played was, you know, a big part of right-wing meme culture. And so it, it had been around for a few years. It had been popular on, you know, especially these anti-Islamic far-right uh, circles. Does the Balkan far-right have a large influence on uh, the transnational far-right? I tend to think that that influence is a little bit overstated. I think that it's something that is definitely definitely exists, but I think meme culture in general is kind of the more important factor here. Because if you look at the Christ, Christchurch shooter as well, he was into quite a lot of obscure regions, right? Uh, he was really into Armenians as well. So yes, it plays a part. I don't think that as an ideology, these people are particularly committed to, say, 
the Bosnian Serb cause in any or know anything deep, about it really. deeper way, or really know any, very much about it. Yeah, the killer also travelled to various parts of the world, including Eastern Europe. Is there any sense in which I know Ukraine is one uh, place that many uh, fascists from around around the world like to uh, visit? Is there any sense in which the Balkans, in particular, or neighbouring territories, attract? soldiers of fortune from the transnational far right? Well, that was the case more in the 90s, I would say. I mean, uh, during the war uh, in Yugoslavia in the 90s, you had all kinds of Nazis fighting on different sides, actually, and sometimes even switching sides. So, for example, uh, you know, people from the British Combat 18 fought on the, I think, initially... Croatian side, and then some of them changed to the Serbian side, and you had uh, all kinds of neo-Nazi volunteers joining the war. Uh, for example, on the other side, the Serbian side, you had volunteers and a whole detachment consisting out of Greek New Dawn neo-Nazi members. But I guess these days, Ukraine is has a similar role as Yugoslavia did in the 90s, and you have fascist volunteers, again, on both sides of a war. It's just the ideological inconsistency that you hate to see. Yeah. Pick a side. Is like total emptiness really ever incompatible with another total emptiness? Well, I mean, that's, uh, you know, because um, from this kind of superficial nationalist perspective, I guess sometimes they, uh, uh, I mean, there is a similarity between Ukraine and, for example, Serbia and Montenegro, which was called the Federal Republic of Yugoslavia in the 90s, because they are uh, by some uh, and and Russia today because they're uh, by some perceived as somehow inherently communist or were at the time so some of the neo-nazis in the west joined the croatian side because they thought that this is like an anti-communist uh, cause fighting a, a communist army because at the time the serbian side still had some kind of so insignia from the socialist era and you know it was led by milosevic who was a, b- before that a communist and so on and then they realized okay this is not really what's going on so started switching sides and so on. And I think today some some people can uh, uh, see, for, un- for some bizarre reasons, the Russian side as somehow being inherently anti-fascist, which doesn't have any sense at all. So you would have, you know, some neo-Nazis against, uh, for, the, for, the, for the, uh, those reasons, supporting the Ukrainian side. Even uh, Russian neo-Nazis who are fighting on the Ukrainian side. So all kinds of bizarre things are going on. Uh, a term that you'll often hear on The Empire Never Ended is a stay-behind operation. Could you tell our listeners what a stay-behind operation is? Yeah, I mean, um, so uh, initially I think the the term was uh, used by the Nazis themselves, the original ones during the Second World, uh, World War, towards the end when they were basically preparing to lose the war. So they had this idea of forming these stay-behind units that would stay behind the enemy lines as, uh, you know, the new regimes were established in liberated Europe, let's say, uh, and kind of do sub, uh, subversions and guerrilla fighting to destable the new regimes. And even uh, we did an episode about such units in Yugoslavia, and you can even find that back then they even used terms such strategy of tension and so on, that, which will be used 
for decades later. But what happened was that after the war, uh, a lot of these um, units were kind of found out by Western intelligence, especially the American ones, which were present in Western Europe, especially in Italy. And because, you know, the, a kind of a new world uh, war was starting, the Cold War, in which, you know, the sides uh, were different. The main enemy now was the Soviet bloc. A lot of these uh, people were recruited for the Western cause because they were very motivated anti-communists ready to fight. So um, I guess initially they were recruited to save the same purpose in a case of a Soviet invasion or, or, or a communist if the communist parties took over power, for example, in Italy. But as time went on, they were recruited. They started doing different things, much more brutal, like engaging in terrorism, uh, specifically targeting civilian populations in order to discredit the, the radical ref or the anarchist and to create this tension in society, which would uh, make the population more docile and um, supportive of the state. So now, yeah, all of this kind of sounds like a conspiracy theory, but uh, a lot of these things are kind of proven to have happened. And there are like a lot of kind of respected researchers uh, who wrote things about it, even made some, uh, there's a BBC documentary about it, I think from the early nineties. And there was a, um, especially uh, an important person for all of this uh, this whole process which in Italy was called gladio and um, the term was later on used for all of these things that I kind of described so this person was a CIA guy called James Jesus Angleton who uh, was a very weird character that's our boy and he's a kind of a ghost that haunts our um, whole podcast although we never specifically did an episode about any of this that I just said but it's uh, it's in the background of a lot of things that we discuss. And he's, by the way, he was the basis for the character that Matt Damon plays in the film uh, The Good Shepherd. In Australia, from the 1950s through until, I think, the 1970s, there was uh, a Eustachia presence, and on a number of occasions, some notorious Croatian exiles would train in Australia, then attempt to return and, and overthrow the um, uh, Yugoslavian government have in your podcast and I guess in your general examination of this territory in this period, have you had an opportunity to examine the diaspora or the diasporic elements of these fascist formations that formed in Europe? Well, actually, we're going to dedicate like a whole arc of episodes to that later down the line. The most recent one was kind of a way to establish the back context to the diaspora guys that would later do terrorism. Uh, and so we haven't really touched much on that time period yet, but we plan on doing so relatively soon. I mean, this year for sure. You mentioned uh, things that sound like they're conspiracy theories, but uh, are actually true. And I think that's something that's going to color a little bit of what we're about to talk about. Yeah. Uh, before we get into what you discovered in Montenegro, could you maybe just give us a quick refresher on the Order of the Nine Angles. It's something we've talked about on the show before, yep. but uh, maybe for new listeners, what is O9A? Yeah, that, that's a topic that's a, it's a bit difficult to explain in a concise way. But let's say that Order of Nine Angles is a Nazi Satanist something. It's a bit difficult to say a Nazi Satanist what exactly it is. It's like an invented tradition. Yeah. They call themselves an order. They're definitely not an order. But it's a Nazi Satanist thing that was founded by this uh, very weird British Nazi guy called David Mayat, probably sometime in the 60s or 70s. It's hard to say reliably because he's a, a, like a pathological liar. 
in their own mythology that he invented, they exist for thousands of years. So, yeah, it's a bit difficult to say, but probably... Their origin story is very similar to uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, um, the Lady in the Lake, yes, all that kind of yeah. stuff. If you if you listen to them, yeah. What we know for sure about this guy is that he was, for decades, an important na- active Nazi in Britain. And there is actually a connection to what we discussed in the beginning, because in the 70s, he was active in a paramilitary neo-Nazi group called Column 88, which had connections with the intelligence and also the British Army, and uh, is sometimes referred to as the uh, British section of Gladio. So there's that connection that's not often discussed when uh, um, the Order of Nine Angles is the topic. And David Mind has like various autobiographical texts written under different pseudonyms, but in one of those, he kind of writes that actually the suggestion of starting something like the Order of Nine Angles came from his uh, like comrades from Column 88. So there's even a connection uh, between the Order of Nine Angles and Gladio, possibly. Of course, the only proof that we have of that is coming from this obvious liar and a Nazi Satanist. Uh, but yeah, it makes it really hard to research, yeah. by the way. Later, David Myatt was uh, active in a much more well-known Nazi terrorist group called Combat 18, which, you know, was active in the early 90s and led by this kind of Nazi psycho guy called Charlie Sargent, who at some point killed another Nazi. And there was a, a break in the Combat 18 and in two factions. And David Myatt sided with Charlie Sargent. And with him and his brother in the 90s, he founded the group called the National Socialist Movement. And a member of the National Socialist Movement in 99 became the known as the London Nail Bomber and did a, a campaign of bombing. Uh, called, and the guy was called David Copeland, who was influenced by some writing of David Might. But throughout uh, this whole period, uh, David Might had this different side of him, which was this Satanist side and... Uh, using the name Anton Long, who, uh, and he was the founder of the group of uh, uh, Order of Nine Angles, which is a Satanist group that kind of tries to be the most kind of uh, extreme Satanist groups. Other Satanists would like to distance themselves from some uh, ex- more extremist uh, things usually associated with Satanism, but ONA kind of embraces it. For example, the practice of making you know human sacrifices, which they call culling, and which they say is essential to their group. But since you know internet kind of exists, uh, the groups uh, or this. Uh, the, the brand, let's say, and their mythology kind of spread over the internet. So there are a lot of groups and individuals today claiming to be a part of it and influenced by David Myatt's ideology and Satan, satanic practice, let's say. You're listening to Yeah Nah Passaran on 3CR, 8.55am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital on your DAB radio. We're currently talking to Ray, Fritz and Boris from The Empire Never Ended. Uh, there's also a practice that they have, which I think is going to be important to what we're talking about, which is the insight role. Can you tell us what an insight role is? This is part of their one of their stages of uh, of ascension through this um, very video game like setup of um, tasks you have to do to get to this stage or that stage. And the insight role is the idea that uh, an initiate should spend something like six months to a year experiencing a way of life that is somehow a like counter to what they would normally desire in their own lives. So for instance, some of these texts suggest that if you, whatever, love chaos, you should become a cop or something like this. And the other point of this, besides like experiencing uh, an oppositional way of life and like building up, what do they call it? Pate matos. This, this yeah. like, 
meaning there's so many meaningless words i'm not hopefully we can skip most of them but really like you learn all sorts of horrible words from this shit but um so so the other the other point is to like silently spread onine uh whatever ideology if you can even call it that uh into like segments of society that are public part part of what insight rolls in some of the onine texts emphasizes that you should actually adopt the identity that you're going for and like go by a different name, like really embrace it, but with the ultimate goal of spreading Onine philosophy. Now that we've established uh, what Onine is and what an insight role is, can you tell us what is the Astral Bone Nora's Lodge? <laughs> that is the the most well-named Nexian in the Onine pantheon, I would say. It's a mouthful. Astral Bonar's Lodge. Well, okay, I should I use the word Nexian like everybody should know what that means. But Nexian is sort of um, their word for I don't know. I guess what you would call like a coven. It's it's their word for points at which people converge to make their own uh, little mini order. You know, and uh, ABGs become quite a prominent one in recent years. So this is they're based in Montenegro, and you guys have found out who is behind them. How did you do that, and who are they? Well, when we first started looking into them, I mean, looking into the O9A in general, we discovered this one that was based in the Balkans, and this was relatively surprising for us. And we did some digging around, and it seems like at first we knew that somewhere in Montenegro there was some discussion among us about some being in Croatia as well, but it turns out that it's basically one or two people. And we found this out in a kind of funny way, because we kept on reading their text and trying to figure out who they were. And then we found on Facebook a Onine Balkans page. We should maybe mention, though, also why they got our attention in the first place. They, uh, we got a, a really nice early review of our podcast um, <laughs> from, uh, from the Order of Nine Angles Twitter account, which, which reposted an entire episode that we did, which I thought was great. And, uh, and referred to us as, uh, self-tested opfers, which would be, you know, their, their fancy German-ish word for sacrifices. Uh, so, you know, that was a nice hello. How do you do? And, you know, and we responded. Uh, he called us also very immature, said that our humor was immature and we were deeply offended by this. So we made our own lodge in response called the Cosmic Boner Chewers Lodge. And we filed an official kind of letter of complaint with the ABG about this disrespectful tone. But anyway, yeah, sorry, Boris. Yeah, so in our, in our effort to find out who they were, when I found the Onane Balkans page, I just started going through who was consistently heart-reacting to all their posts. And one of them, two of them stood out to me, and I started looking into who these people were, mainly because, you know, most Onane people's uh you know, Facebook names are something like Chris Talnacht or, you know, <laughs> yeah. something, you know, overtly Nazi or Satanist. And there were a couple that weren't. And so I found this woman and I looked at her profile and I was like, hmm, this is a person who's some sort of Montenegro nationalist. I looked her up and she is, in fact, this disgraced diplomat who said all these controversial things, got kicked out of the diplomatic corps and was, you know, a major person on the kind of tabloid circuit for a few years a couple years ago and so i was like hmm, this is odd this person is into the 09a that is quite surprising and then the more i looked at it the more i started to see her partner emerge as 
a person that she was posting with and tagged in photos. And the long, to make a long story short, that guy is the ABG Lodge. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Undone by heart reacts and uh, tagging your partner. I think it's a story as old as time. That's right. Taken down by love. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, it was shocking to me because I was going through their stuff and then all of a sudden I see, oh shit, these people, I mean, this is a public figure, right? Her name was all over the news for quite some time. And she's posting, you know, pictures that have 09A imagery in them, banking on the fact that absolutely nobody knows what that stuff is, right? But so, also clearly not really understanding how the internet works. No, because it's all public, right? I mean, it's, it's insane. So like, you know, I'm scrolling through and I see a picture of her reading Temple of Blood's text, False Prophet. I'm like, holy shit, they didn't even try to hide it at all. So she was uh, Myrna Nikcevich, and he yes. was Nikola Poleksic. Uh, yes. what was it? What's his story? Well, he seems to be kind of an OG in the kind of newer wave of the 09A. Uh, he's been studying it for uh, 20 years? Yes, he really likes emphasizing the fact that he's been studying esoteria for 20 years and that you know he's really deep in the game. But from what I can tell, he started getting into 09A stuff in the early 2000s. I think he's around 40 now. So, you know, like as a you know, late teen, early 20s person, got really into the 09A. And he had been active on a lot of these like old... 09A forums. He even posted on Stormfront for a little while. We found those posts. Most notably, he was in a band. He was in several bands, and this is how we kind of tracked down his identity. But he was in a band that's very popular with 09A people called Dark Imperium, spelled with a V instead of a U. They always um, have to change some fucking letter. It's yeah, they always have to, you know, make it look whatever. Felt you should see them try to spell vampire. Oh, just yeah, a W A M P H Y R. No sense. It's a Slavic yeah. word. There's, yes, ridiculous. Uh, and so, you know, there were there are quite a bit of pictures on the internet of Dark Imperium from like you know 2008, 2009, up until recently. Basically, they took down a lot of their stuff when his wife Mina got in trouble. But you know, of course, the Internet Wayback Machine exists and all that fun stuff, so you can actually find images of them relatively easily. We then cross-reference some stuff from Dark Imperium with bands from Montenegro. Uh, that we know that he played in because we eventually got access to his Facebook through people that we know that were friends with him. Um, well, people that he was creeping on. Yeah, uh, he, yeah, yeah. I guess he, he really likes adding random women he's never met before. And so once we started asking a couple questions, people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, that guy added me a long time ago. Here, you want his pictures? And so we were able to ascertain his identity just by like going through, you know, we saw he played bass. There aren't that many, you know, whatever do metal bands or metal bands in general Montenegro. So it was kind of easy to go through when you, his first name was Nicola. So we just, you know, I went on encyclopedia Metallum and just went through bands that had, you know, a bass player named Nicola in them. <laughs> and so besides being, you know, 9A and besides being a Montenegrin death metal bassist, what else is he? What was his insight role? <laughs> well, this is what became most fascinating to us. So, I mean, this took us by surprise even because we'd been following him for some time and, you know, he did post like his weird Satanist stuff. And then this kind of Gnostic church of Christ Lucifer that he founded, which he talked about in this uh, interview with Jake Hanrahan. But all of a sudden around spring of this year, we start seeing pictures of him in robes at churches of the Montenegro Orthodox church. We're like, what the f 
is going on? And as it turns out, he managed to become, uh, at first, like, a, I guess, you know, he started from the from being a, a mere altar boy or something and worked his way up to assistant deacon. And within a few months, he became a full deacon. And not only that, I mean, he was fully embraced by this church, which, you know, to be fair, it doesn't really have that many members and are kind of desperate for people. But the fact that they didn't vet him at all, I mean, they were, the bishop of that church was friends with him on his old Facebook that was completely Satanist and Nazi. (laughs) (laughs) And somehow didn't notice or chose to ignore all of that. I mean, the, it's, we were commenting that the, the Order of Nine Angles has like much more stringent standards for membership than the Montenegrin Orthodox Church does. Absolutely. Like, it, it takes something like four to 11 years to ascend to like an internal adept, you know. Uh, this dude got to deacon in what, four months, he said? Yeah. Well, in most other churches, it takes like a couple of years to go from like subdeacon to deacon. He, you know, they, they put him through in a matter of months. He was serving like Easter liturgy with the you know patriarch of the church. He's a fast learner. Yeah, well, <laughs> or it's not hard. Yeah. <laughs> Did his uh, sermons uh, perplex his uh, congregation? Do you think? Well, I don't think he's gotten to the point of being ha- uh, able to have sermons, but he does like maintain a strong internet presence in some of these um, Montenegrin Orthodox church groups. A lot of which have quite a few members. So, I mean, like. The one that he's an admin in that he posts in regularly has something like 5,000 people, which is like 2% of the total number of people who identify as ethnic Montenegrins. <laughs> so and it's not like insignificant. We're talking about a pretty small place. So you've published all of this information. What has been the reaction from, I guess, you know, the church, from the Montenegrin establishment, the media? Well, the Serbian nationalist tabloids loved it. Oh yeah, absolutely. Happy to call somebody a Satanist, pedophile, Nazi. <laughs> right, because I mean this there's a there's a broader context to this like kind of conflict that's going on between these churches, but you know, they had been t- calling these people Nazis and Satanists for some time, and you know, most of the time it's bullshit. In this case it just happened to be true. So, uh these tabloids really did pick up on it. A bunch of them republished it. Of course, that was kind of funny because we wrote specifically in the article that, you know, we knew they were going to do this and hey, fuck off as well. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, they kind of ignored that part and just, you know. Yeah, but the Montenegrin Orthodox Church kind of ignored everything. Yeah. I mean, I don't know, like, should we explain the political situation a little bit in Montenegro? I don't know how clear it is what the Montenegrin Orthodox Church is and what role it has there and how important it is. Well, I mean, so there is a, like a political conflict going on in Montenegro that also has this kind of nationalist side to it. So a part of the kind of Slavic population in Montenegro identify as Serbian and the other larger part as Montenegrin, but there is no really kind of uh, any kind of ethnic difference between these two parts. It's purely ideological. So you would often have members of the same family identifying uh, as Serb or uh, Montenegrin. And the dominant Orthodox Church in, uh, and most people are Orthodox in Montenegro is the Serbian Orthodox Church, which is kind of the officially recognized in the Orthodox world, uh, as the, uh, official church in Montenegro. But some of these Montenegrin nationalists form their own breakaway church called the Montenegrin Orthodox Church, which is not recognized by any of the, like, official Orthodox churches. And 
Yeah, at least the ABG Lodge is recognized by the other fucking yeah. Nexians. And has a small uh, number of members, but started growing in the recent years, uh, and mostly because of these nationalist reasons. So it's supported by the a part of the people who identifies as a Montenegro nationalist and is becoming a more and more important part of the Montenegrin nationalist movement. So in uh, both Mirna and Nikola are kind of well-placed inside of this movement because when she was kicked out of the you know, diplomatic corps, she founded an, an organization, an NGO called Montenegro International, which kind of poses as a multicultural civil society NGO, but it's basically a, a Montenegro nationalist organization and he's a, a deacon in the church. So they are kind of an influential couple now in the Montenegrin nationalist movement and uh, have public roles. Like she, uh, even uh, now she has, uh, you know, she uh, is a part of public events with well-respected Montenegro nationalist academics and so on, uh, where they discuss uh, different topics. And yeah, and he's he's basically a priest. So yeah, it's a very weird situation. And since we uh, discovered this and published it, basically this whole side, uh, the Montenegro nationalist sides, and specifically the Montenegro Orthodox Church, kind of choose, chose to completely ignore it. Well, to be fair, the, the, the breakaway church of the breakaway church. Yeah, th- th- there's also that. At least recognize the yeah. article. Yeah. Uh, Andy, I think you had a question about John Paul Cap. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I, I do. Poor bastard. <laughs> uh, perhaps for uh, listeners who aren't familiar with uh, the figure of John Paul Cup, he's appeared on my blog uh, some years ago, but um, has had many adventures, and I guess is an example of someone who's uh, travelled widely. widely across the uh, ideological landscape. Perhaps you guys could uh, briefly describe who Cup is and why you took an interest in him. I mean, <laughs> so he he's connected to the story of the Temple of Blood, which was an axion of the Order of Nine Angles in the United States, uh, and uh, is kind of a more, even a more extreme side of the Order of Nine Angles. So this group... They're vampires. Yeah, they 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 want to be vampires uh, because the Order of Nine Angles has this whole uh, idea of overcoming humanity, evolving be- beyond being human, and often this means basically embracing some kind of sociopathy. And uh, in the case of the Temple of Blood, this literally means becoming a vampire. So they are really a horrible group. Uh, they also kind of embrace all kinds of horrible things, inc- including pedophilia and so on, and. This cop fellow kind of kind of uh, had this misfortune to meet the, those people, and uh, it's a very it's a very interesting and crazy story. Uh, journalist Nate Taylor wrote a lot about it, so I would recommend reading his text. You can find them on the internet. And so, cop was um, at some point, basically in the early two thousands, a homeless uh, man, but he decided to become an official supporter of the North Korean regime and managed to make some contacts with them and to start a pro-North Korean group in the United States, uh, while at the same time being a white nationalist and, you know, a, a homeless person for some period. So um, the North Korean... And a poet. Yeah, the North Korean regime, uh, it seems, was aware that he was a white nationalist, but kind of choose to ignore that. They only told him, like, not do, uh, to not uh, publish any of that stuff on their uh, official pro-North Korean website. He can do, you know, on other websites, whatever he wants to. 
And what happened was that this Temple of Blood group also kind of started their own kind of front uh, fake um, quasi-Maoist political party, which was also kind of uh, pro-Jim Jones for whatever reason, and decided to have their own pro-North Korean group. This was, I guess, a part of their insight role approach to stuff. And this is how they met Cup. And um, I mean, it's a very long story and kind of exciting and unbelievable. But in their power struggle, who will be the the leader of this tiny group of weirdos who are pro-North Korean in the United States, the Temple of Blood people, which is mostly this couple, decided they want to uh, uh, murder uh, uh, Cup by... Um, the 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 woman uh, in the Temple of Blood group who seduced him, they kind of had a, a a fake relationship, and apparently she tried to poison him. So yeah, that happened after uh, getting engaged to him. Yeah, and in in the pro- in the whole process, uh, I think Cup also became an Islamist, uh, which is also what David Myatt did at some point in the early. It's a yeah. common path for a lot of Onaine. Well, a lot of Nazis yeah. in general. I feel like if they just hung on until like the TikTok tankies arrived on the scene, they could have done some real numbers. Yeah, yeah oh, I was man. about well, to they're say. Not done yet. They're, they're lucky that, uh, or, or I guess we're lucky that TikTok tankies didn't exist back then because I'm sure there'd be like tons of people standing the rural people's party <laughs> and, uh, you know, embracing Jim Jones thought and <laughs> whatever. <laughs> Uh, the Jim Jones challenge. That'd be a disaster for TikTok. <laughs> oh, wow. That might actually, it'd be a disaster for TikTok, but maybe not for the rest of us if they, you know, do yeah, the Kool-Aid, yeah. Kool-Aid challenge. Yeah. <laughs> I guess um, one question that goes to me when talking about this person and, and a range of others who appear uh, on the podcast and elsewhere is these are relatively marginal figures whose beliefs at face value seem quite bizarre and disturbing. And yet it seems to be a kind of pole of attraction for many. What do you think it is that, that draws people from otherwise kind of coherent or uh, more mainstream ideologies to these margins? And what's the relationship between these marginal political figures and ideas and movements and what might be called the political mainstream? Well, we usually frame it on the podcast in terms of, of alienation and sort of keep it more or less to that. I don't know. Ray, do you want to comment on this? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, I think that a lot of people are, are searching to belong to some kind of a community. I think we see that in also the mainstream nationalist politics. You know, the whole idea of a nation, I think, is a way to create some kind of an idea of a community in a world which is very atomized and alienated. So you fake this kind, uh, create this kind of fake community, uh, such as an, this idea of a nation to belong to. And um, I think the connection with these more marginal groups is that, you know, they're, they are creating some kind of a, they're inventing tradition to belong to and some kind of a community to belong to. And I mean, uh, as things progress with capitalism and people are more and more alienated and atomized, I think things start to be more kind of obviously weird. But yeah, I mean, that's usually the angle I look uh, look at this thing. One of the nine angles. Um, in the domain of um, anti-fascism more generally, when examining these um, groups and movements uh, from, a, I guess, a, um, a more radical or, or anarchist perspective, what do you think is kind of missing from many of the uh, other accounts that attempt to understand and to situate these ideas and movements? I think one of the things that I like on our show, uh, if I can say so, 
is that uh, what we we try to find a nice balance in taking these people seriously as you know dangerous uh, sociopaths, but also pointing out how utterly ridiculous the shit that they're saying is. I mean, David Myatt being a fantastic example of this, the man wrote thousands and thousands of pages of text saying more or less, if people stop believing the Holocaust happened, we're all going to get into space and have a galactic imperium that stretches to infinity. You know, he, he literally wants to make the Star Wars empire real and people take this seriously. And that's, and that's funny. But of course, you know, we take great pains to show that these people are genuinely dangerous and have a body count that continues to rise. And, uh, I don't know. They're they're silly and and dangerous. I think it, it often it's very tempting to romanticize a lot of these groups in the ways that they would like to be romanticized. I mean, a lot of what the Temple of Blood, for instance, writes is just like horrible fan fiction of like you know Nazi exploitation films, you know, and stuff like this. But it's it's there openly to to shock to to like suck what they call the the blood energy out of what David Myatt would call Magian society, which is like their version of a Jewish um, control over, you know, Western society, et cetera. I mean, so we, we try not to give them the satisfaction of, of that while still taking them very seriously. I was asked actually by a friend if you cared to comment on, you have these kind of, you know, in the current era, I guess, in the Balkans and elsewhere, there's a lot of discussion about red-brown politics and uh, the revival of fascism. But there's also a nostalgia for or an attempt to perhaps to to recreate some of the politics associated with uh, the communist empire or however you want to describe it. What's your reading of the current situation in terms of the the political uh, tendencies within the Balkans and are any kind of you know, increasing in support? Is it a generational question or, you know, it's a very general question, but but what's going on? <laughs> okay. Just maybe a quick comment about the red-brown thing. I, I kind of, um, we, we did talk, discuss that a little bit on the podcast. Uh, I think that a lot of people who are talking about that maybe are missing to um, sometimes the opportunity to also add a third pole to their critique, which is the general kind of context of capitalism and liberalism in which these kind of ideologies, both the red and brown develop. So sometimes there is uh, sounding somehow more pro-democratic or pro-liberal in their criticism of, you know, liberal sounding in the sense of the liberal critique of, you know, the two extremes, uh, the, the right one and the, the, the left one, which is, Bit risky, um, I think. So I think for me, it's important, like, to, yes, to, uh, to, to point out these kind of red brown connections and criticize them, but always, um, to emphasize the, the, the also the critique of uh, capitalism and liberalism, I would say, in that context. About the Balkans, I don't know. I mean, um, this is definitely a different time than the nineties were. And, um, in terms of, you know, uh, capitalism and the usual kind of European societies it produces, the things are more or less, let's say, normal now. I mean, this, of course, means that the, all politics is dominated by nationalism, but this is the nationalism now that's kind of accept, accepted inside of the kind of, you know, whatever, liberal consensus or whatever you want to call it. So, I don't know. It's a bit, uh, it's a very broad question, so I'm not sure how yes. to... Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think maybe that, like, the fact that things are more normal in that sense uh, allows for some of these groups to kind of take a more established foothold. I mean, I think we've seen over the last couple of years, 
at least on the like the far right angle groups that are you know starting to make money and connect internationally in ways that they weren't previously able to do which is definitely concerning it's kind of hard to tell what direction that's going to go in because i mean they're not that well established <laughs> so to say uh but i mean there are like you know you know nazi companies that are you know doing streetwear you know screen printing shirts for groups internationally including in australia from what i understand mm. um some of them are printed in Serbia, from what I know. It's there's there's a lot that, that can go into a very long conversation. <laughs> in terms of, uh, for I guess English language speakers, are there any text publications and, and podcasts apart from your own that you would recommend to someone as a kind of um, to orientate themselves around contemporary politics in the Balkans? Podcasts, I would say, not so much. I mean, I think that's kind of one of the things that we wanted to do there because there's there's kind of a gap in like at least good english language coverage from like a more radical perspective but yeah uh texts yes i think so <laughs> ray what do you what do you have to say about that well i mean i would recommend maybe the the journal called antipolitica which you can find in english I mean, it's it's not published regularly. I think there are only two issues, and yeah. I think most of the texts are. Yeah, online, you can though. find the blog, um, and it has a lot of historical texts about the Balkans from an anarchist and radical perspective. Right, so it's an anarchist publication that doesn't publish very often. Imagine that. <laughs> <You're> <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> well, gentlemen, we might leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to find it, the podcast is called The Empire Never Ended. It is all over everywhere you can get your podcasts. Yeah. Yeah, thanks yeah. for coming on. That's Thank right. you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Global Intifada is up next. We'll catch you next week. See you later. See ya. Na 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 na
Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban Indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love come your way What can I say You feel the hell You change